Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 16. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Hands up if you are married or have been married. Okay. Hands up if you have friends. Hands up if you've been a parent or you have been a child. And keep your hand up this time. So most of you put your hand up at least once then. Now, now keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Now, I only want you to take your hands down if when listening to your spouse, your friends, your parents, or as a child, you haven't felt at some time excited, delighted, motivated, joyful, impressed, or thoughtful. All of you. All of you still got your hands up. Most of you, at least. Is that hand up, Rick? <laughs> Put, take your hand down if you haven't had that experience in these relationships. All right. You're looking around thinking, what's wrong with this congregation? All right. Now, they, they are the feeling words, right? All of you have them. They're emotions. All of you have these, and these are the pleasant ones. You can take your hands down now. I'll put, 
right? Now, I think we'll have the same response to the harder, more challenging feelings as well. All right, all of you put your hands up again and only take them down if you haven't had these experiences. Hand up. All right. If your spouse, friend, child, or parent has said something that hasn't said something that cuts to the quick, something that reveals some ugliness in you and really hurts, something that confuses, challenges, penetrates, gets deeply inside you, leave you feeling naked or exposed, something that feels sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrates dividing your spirit into the joints and into the marrow, something that judges the thoughts and attitudes of your hearts, sending you into a series of painful and more difficult emotions, the confusion, the annoyance, the frustration, the anger, the resentment, or the resignation. And you all still have your hands up. That... All right. The question is, the, let me just get to the point. <laughs> the point here is that none of us in our relationships aren't having emotional reactions to what's going on. We aren't responding to, we aren't being challenged or being reassured. We aren't being confronted or being comforted by the other. Now, how many of you are familiar with the movie Stepford Wives? 1975, set in the town of Connecticut. The basic premise of that movie is all these husbands are sick and tired of their difficult wives, so they go and create these perfect uh, representative robot wives that meet every need and live exactly as the husbands want them to live. And of course, they don't have any of these negative reactions. They just have this sort of bland, uh, non-relationship existence with their wives. Now, if God is real and not some Stepford God, and we want a real relationship with him, we are going to have to listen to him. And we're going to have to hear him say things that we don't always want or like to hear. Similarly, we will feel excited and delighted, motivated, joyful, impressed, and thoughtful at different times. This series is about listening to God. And the first two sermons, last week and this week, are about focusing on listening through Scripture. They both come from Hebrews 4. And last week we unpacked the importance of covenant-orienting prayer. We looked at that in theory. And this week we're going to dig into the practical. This text, Hebrews 4, mirrors Psalm 95, which we had on the screen. This week we're going to dig deep and we're going to look at how we pray through Scripture, how we have an experience of covenant-orienting prayer, real relationship with God, by praying through Scripture. And we're going to, first of all, do a quick overview of last week, what is covenant-orienting prayer. We're going to look at what Scripture is, and then we're going to do a practical example. So we're looking at how do we have a non-Stepford relationship with God by practicing listening through covenant-oriented prayer. A quick review of last week a look at scripture and what that is, and then we'll do a practical example. Last week, quick summary. Last week we looked primarily at verses 1 to 11 in this uh, chapter and 14 to 16. And chapter 4, we said, is primarily a chapter on active rest, and that is not a contradiction. God did not stop working on the sixth day. He rested from creation, but he continues to work in the process of sustaining uh, and holding the universe together. 
of ensuring that providence works out the way he plans it to work out. Israel would not have stopped working after they entered the land of milk and honey, even if they had done that properly and obediently. Yes, they would have rested from aimless wandering, but they would have worked as they entered into the covenant land, fulfilling the covenant promises to them. Israel would not have stopped working if Joshua had successfully conquered Canaan. Yes, they would have had rest from conflict and war, but they would not have had rest from tilling the soil and, and doing the things that brought them forward in, uh, in their lives. David, in Psalm 95, which this text parallels and which is quoted in this text, and Hebrews 4, the passage we looked at, are calling people into a work of covenant obedience. And they're making the argument that the rest is from the consequences of not walking in the covenant. So again, this is active work, but the rest comes from the consequences of not working in the covenant. We don't experience uh, the, the problems of disobedience. We're moving towards making all our little stories fit into his big story. So the rest is not stopping. It's actively moving to be part of his story. Now, there are two parts to this. The first part is in the fullness of the coming kingdom. And we look forward to that. This week has really been hard on this country, following what happened in Buffalo, and we see the brokenness. We know the brokenness in the lives around us, and we know that in the fullness of the coming kingdom, there'll be no pain or suffering, only joy uh, and in our work. But more relevant to us today is how do we find a foretaste of this rest in this difficult, broken world? Now, it's a, it's a foretaste of that coming rest, and it's not rest from the work, unfortunately now, of suffering or lamenting or mourning brokenness. Because honestly, God hasn't rested from that either. God is currently suffering or suffered on the cross and is mourning and is grieved at some of the sin and brokenness in the world. And when we suffer and lament and mourn, we're picking up the cross of Christ. So when our little stories and our efforts at godly endeavours don't work out as we would hope and pray, it's okay. We realise it's okay because we can rest in God's work and not our own work. But it's also not okay. And in moving into that covenant story, we do allow ourselves to lament and grieve at the brokenness. But we remember in that sort of paradoxical way, it's okay. And the, way, the phrase we used last week, as crude as it was, was when, using the example of flying back from, from Europe, when someone vomits on you in the plane, when someone vomits on you in life, you can be reminded that God is not just the pilot, but he's also the engineer and he also built the plane. Yes, being vomited on by the world really is unpleasant, but God is still in charge and the plane is still going to arrive at the destination. The coming kingdom is still the trajectory that we're working toward. So this rest comes through prayer. We saw this last week, specifically covenant-oriented prayer. It comes to us constantly listening, as God tells us, how we're to move under his wing. And this is actually, I think, the big application that runs all through Scripture. How do we actively move under his covenant? wing. So that was a quick summary of last week. 
but it moves, means to move into the rest of covenant obedience. Part two, I want to unpack now verses 11 to 12, the first part of 12, uh, sorry, to, uh, to the end of verse uh, 13, which we didn't look at so much last week, which is really about Scripture. So the question on the table is, well, how do we do this covenant-oriented listening? How do we engage with Scripture in a way that produces this covenant-oriented listening? And we see here in verses 11 and 12a, and let me read them to you, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following example, their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active. So the key piece here is this movement into the covenant promises, this movement away from disobedience in the covenant, this movement away from obedience that towards obedience that acknowledges him rather than some sort of obedience that defines us, that sort of active rest that we find in the covenant. That work which is refreshing in a sense, it's not depleting because we're not depending on ourselves. it's not burdensome because we depend on ourselves. And the key word here describing scripture is active and alive. Active and alive. And they're talking about written words on a piece of paper, parchment, active and alive. What does it mean that Scripture is active and alive? I'm going to read two verses, one from John 16, verses 14 to 15, and another from Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And I want you to see that Scripture here, as I'm reading them, is described as spirit. It is, it is described as Christ in, Christ's words and God's words. Firstly, John 16 he will glorify me, this is Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit, because it is from me that he will receive what he will take and make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. And then in verse in Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that's the rest, the covenant rest work we're talking about. So scripture is God and Jesus in spirit. It is alive. Now, that's mysterious because we sometimes think of the book as just a book with paper and text. But so is communion. When you come up and take communion, you actually are digesting, taking in as you drink the wine and as you eat the bread, the spirit of Christ. And we say that is a mystery. We don't fully understand it. But we encounter the spirit of Christ as we take communion. We are supposed to be transformed by that encounter. You can certainly come up to that communion table and you can just eat the bread and drink the wine and not encounter Christ. And you can open a book of scripture and you can read it like an academic. You can dissect it. You can not encounter the Spirit of Christ through it. But in the Scripture is the Spirit of Christ, the voice of God, and in the communion elements is the Spirit which transforms us. They both have the power to transform us. So Scripture can be words on a page, just like communion can be bread and wine, if you harden your hearts. But if you don't harden your hearts, if you encounter God in communion and you encounter him in Scripture, 
This is the primary way. The primary way, that's the point of this text, the primary way we enter into the covenant is the, the promises of the covenant is by listening, by not hardening our heart. It's the primary way we hear his voice. It's how we test everything else we may think God is telling us. It means we listen with an ear to hear. Now, often we talk about studying the word, studying the word. And, and unfortunately, that has almost become meeting. I learned my Greek. I learned my Hebrew. I know what a chiasm is. I know what a parallelism is. I know what cultural relevance is. And I can dissect this with an excellent amount of head knowledge. But really, I think, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with all of that, and it certainly helps open up the scripture. But what we really need to be doing is being relational. We need to be prayerful. We need to be prayerfully asking God to help us to listen. We need to be striving for relational knowledge here. It would be better to say that we pray scripture, that we enter into scripture as a dialogue, that we are intentionally listening for God's voice. So the first point I want to take out of verses uh, 11 through 13 is this idea that scripture is alive and we interact with God's spirit when we interact with scripture. Second thing I want to read is, look at is verse 12, the second part of verse 12. Let me read that to you. For the word of God is alive and active. That's the first part. Then we move on to sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing the soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Before I asked you about heart emotions with your spouse, with your friends, with your parents and your children. Now, how much of those hard emotions do you think are due to your sin or are due to your spouse's sin? Perhaps if you think it's more your spouse's sin, that's another sin that you can add to your own list of sins. Now, it's not all sin, by the way. Sometimes it's just genuine ignorance. You both see the world in slightly different ways and you don't have a full big picture of what's going on and so you butt heads. But that conflict, uh, that insightful comment, that revealing of some of the deep issues that are deep inside you, that's how our relationships work. And you might say, well, God is not ignorant and God is not sinful, therefore we don't have a problem. Well, actually, I'd say that the problem is probably just as big for two reasons. One is that you're still half the, the equation of the relationship and you are still, uh, still sinful and ignorant. And in all your relationships, with friends and spouses and children and parents. There are plenty of examples where your sins align and your ignorance aligns. So you don't feel any conflict there. You happily walk down the road of mutual sin together. Now, God isn't like that. God is not sinful and not ignorant. And so we are going to, we have a relationship with God, experience difficult emotions. Real relationships require real listening, and they require a type of wrestled submission. We need to avoid the idea of the Stepford God, the God we've created in our own mind that sort of works for us. And it's a hard process of submission, and it is a process. It begins with acknowledging what's wrong with us, grieving all the things we have to give up, grieving the losses, grieving the, the, the sense of pain of using whatever method we use to cope. 
All the phases of grief are in that. There's denial, there's anger, there's resentment. And finally, we hope we get to a place of submission, of acceptance, and then maybe even uh, joyful submission. And that process should be and can be intimate. It can be something we can do with God. I'm always amazed when people feel like they can walk, they don't, they don't need to grieve with. They don't need to go to God and say, you know what, I'm really angry with you. I'm really frustrated. I don't like this. It's not working out the way I want, as if God shouldn't or can't hear that. He's unable to hear that. We see that all the way through the Psalms, which sort of brings us to the end of point two that I want you to remember. First point is Scripture is alive. The second one is that inevitably when we engage with God through Scripture, we need to give up the sensibilities or the affections that we overvalue as we write our preferences into or avoid ignoring God's preferences in writing our story into his story. So giving up sensibilities or affections or giving up ignoring God's sensibilities and affections. And in our culture, there are plenty of examples where we do that in a group think type of way. So first thing, Scripture is alive. Secondly, if we're not going to have a step for God as we read Scripture, we're going to have to give up sensibilities and affections, or we're going to have to adopt God's sensibilities and affections, and that is going to be emotionally engaging and difficult. Thirdly, I want to read verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who we must give an account. Now, nothing in creation is hidden. Nothing. In other words, and this is the point I was sort of alluding to before, it's safe and it's orienting. The idea that you can't tell God how you're feeling is a bit crazy because he already knows. He already fully knows, probably better than you, how you feel, and you probably need to sit with him and work it out. And what are you going to do? And I do this with my spouse all the time. You probably do too. I'm not angry. Well, maybe I am. And maybe you need to have that word with God too. I'm not angry. Oh, yeah, maybe I am. I'm not resentful. Maybe I am. I'm not bitter. Maybe I am. I'm not resigned. Well, maybe I am. And you know, processing that through with somebody who already knows and probably better than we do is completely safe. And there's something else about it too. It's completely orienting. I remember one of the first difficult moments as a pastor in pastoral care was when uh, someone in the congregation uh, asked me, to, they said, they've got something I want to talk to you about over coffee. I said, sure, let's, let's go and talk. And they said, I'm having an affair with a married man. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, thanks for telling me. Um, why are you having an affair with a married man? And she said, well, I'm really lonely. I said, okay. And she said, and I know God is not happy about it. Uh, but I'm lonely and I've decided that dealing with my loneliness this way is the best way to deal with it. And, you, you know, there's not much I can say except you're right, loneliness is hard. But the choice to have an affair is probably bringing more brokenness and hurt into the world. And can we come alongside you in some way to help you resolve the loneliness so that you can stop having, stop having the affair? What can we do to help with this loneliness? 
And in the end, she said, there's nothing you can do to help me with the loneliness. I've found my solution. It's having an affair with this married man. And actually, believe it or not, that's happened to me twice in pastoral ministry. And there are plenty of other examples which aren't related to having an affair with a married man. And there's plenty of men who have got similar or difficult issues as well. I'm not really trying to make any uh, comment that this is a, a female problem. Now, my first thought, which I don't say, is why are you telling me this rather than telling God? I do try to encourage them to talk to God, but I'm like, there's nothing I can do. Why aren't you arguing with God about this? Why aren't you telling him that you're lonely, angry, and better? Why don't you yell at him? Why don't you falsely accuse him face to face? He already knows how you feel, and you might as well admit it to yourself and thresh it out with him. And here we get to this strange little paradigm, the orienting paradigm of covenant prayer. You see, all through Scripture, there's this idea that God is a parent, a father, a king. And this is the intimate part of the wrestle with God. But these are only half correct as metaphors because they incorrectly communicate to us that God, they sort of imply a similitude between us and God. But God is immeasurably not like us. He's all-present, all-knowing, all-powerful. It's not like we are training children or submitting to a spouse or the wisdom of a spouse. And he's not even like we're training a dog or trying to bring, being loving towards a pet and trying to keep them in the backyard to be safe. We're bringing up the, the dog to be a, a safe, healthy, affectionate member of our family. It's more like, and I think of myself more like this, not in terms of how God loves me, but in the difference between me and God, it's like a slug, right? God loves me like a child, but is training up someone compared to him who's as effective as a slug. So the slug in me does well in the submission process. That's the moving under the covenant wing process. That's the writing my story into his process. When I see him as being so much different, so much more, profoundly more, transcendently bigger than I am. And then as that slug, I'm like, <coughs> you know what? I really don't know which leaf is the best leaf to eat. I really don't know which ones are poison. I don't have a long trajectory of where to lay down my slime. Maybe being obedient to someone who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present makes sense. Seeing the bigness of God compared to who we are, that transcendent, along with the imminent, allows us to move into that covenant submission place. So three things. The third one is... God loves me like a child, but is training me up like a slug. And if you don't like that, you can just go with listening is safe and it's orienting. That's the third one. And the first two is scripture is alive. And we need to, as we engage in scripture, give up our sensibilities and affections. So let's actually do a practice of this. Let's actually practice covenant-orienting prayer through scripture. And I didn't go. What I could have done here is I could have gone and picked a text which had all this stuff in it and was really easy, right? And then you would have said, well, that's easy because you picked that text. So what I did was I actually just picked a, I picked a text that we use every week at the end of the communion. Uh, I picked some, the first five verses of Psalm 103. And what I want to do is I want to 
What I'm going to do is I'm going to read through it once. I'm going to ask a list of questions. We're going to do this with our eyes closed. We're going to do this as prayerful scripture engagement. Then I'm going to read the questions again. Then I'm going to read the text again. And then I'm going to read the scripture. And I just want you to sit in meditation. I want you to hear the words and I want you to answer the questions. And if you want to read along, you'll find, of course, that they're in the communion liturgy. Or if you would prefer, and what I encourage you to do, whatever is the easiest way for you, focus on the text in the bulletin, close your eyes as I read and ask the questions. First of all, let's ask God. Father, we know Scripture is alive, that it's your voice. We ask that you speak to us individually, personally, and corporately as we read together your word. Psalm 103, 1 to 5. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my innermost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Father, speak to us. What emotions, what reactions do we have, do I have as I read this passage, as I hear this text? Am I excited, hopeful, fearful, aware of failure? Why? Where are these feelings coming from? What affections and sensibilities are you asking me to confront? Yours and mine. How am I ignoring or avoiding these or holding on too tightly? God, you love me like a child, but you are completely other. What are you telling me about yourself? What are you telling me about me? How are you calling me to respond in restful obedience, to move under your covenant wing, to do the restful work of submission, to write my story into your story? Praise the Lord, my soul, all my innermost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Father, speak to us through this text. Let us hear your voice. Help us through the emotions that we are feeling connect with our affections and sensibilities. Help us to see your affections and sensibilities. 
How are we overvaluing ours and undervaluing yours? God, you love us like children, but you are completely other. What are you telling me about myself? What are, me, what are you telling me about you? How are you calling me to respond in restful obedience, to move under your covenant wing, to do the restful work of submission, to write my story into your story? And one more time through the text. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my innermost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen. <coughs> and it's quite likely that we all heard God's voice differently because we're all in different places and Scripture is alive and well and convicts and reassures as we need to be convicted and reassured. We went through a simple process and the order is not important and neither is the process. It is the, it is the posture which is important, but we just ask God, let me hear your voice. We chose to go through that process of submission Acknowledging the grieving, the submitting, and the joyful submitting. And then we looked at what it meant to be oriented. Who is he and who am I? And I encourage you to engage in Scripture in this way. Ask yourself those questions. Listen to your heart. Take your emotions to God. Have the dialogue with him through Scripture. Listen to him through his word. Now I'm going to conclude with some, what should be pretty obvious, practical suggestions about it do this regularly first one is make time relationships take time now i'm a big believer in praying in the car on the way to school with my kids i'll tell you that we go to school and on the way the question is always well what's going on today what is it going to look like to move more faithfully under god's wing in words that make sense to them trying to orient their life as I ask those questions into what it means to move under, under God's wing. And they give me answers and we pray for them. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about those moments when you sit with a spouse or a friend, with, uh, with a parent or a child, and you really listen and you really hear what they're saying. And we need to make those intentional. And we have to do that really by developing rhythms, not shoehorning them in. We have to say this relationship with God is the most important orienting thing in my life. How do I prioritize it? How do I put it into the structure of my day? Second thing I want to suggest that you do is that you write in your Bibles, that you engage back with God. You underline stuff that makes you feel something. You put big question marks. I remember as I used to read through uh, the accounts of King David, there was all of this place, he would just do these horrific things and God did nothing. And then he counted the army and God got really upset. I'm like, God, I don't get it. Big question mark. 
next time through. God, I don't get it. Big question mark. Ask those questions. Feel that confusion. Allow it to be there. Underline. Asterisks. Question marks. Talk back in your Bible. Notate your emotions. And the other thing is don't get hung up on certain passages. And this is going to sound heretical, but I'm going to say it anyway. Skip the boring bits. If you're reading through the Toledotes and you've got these lists of names, don't spend hours trying to get some deep emotional meaning out of the list of Hebrew names. Now, those are in there for a reason. And, and what I'll tell you is there are other passages like that too. Skip them. One day you'll actually delve into them. One day that passage God will speak to them through. Right? Skip the boring bits, especially you guys who read through the whole Bible. It's not boring. Or skim them. Do whatever it does to alleviate your conscience. You don't have to find deep meaning in long lists. Also, pace yourself. Chug the chuggable and chew on the chewy. As you're reading through, there's going to be stuff which you think, okay, okay, it's not really profoundly shaping me now. It may the next time you read through. You don't have to sit there. You don't have to say, I'm reading three chapters a day in order to get through this by the end of the year. Invest in the relationship, not in some sort of plan. I'm not saying the plans are bad if they help you, but I'm saying don't get caught up in that. Chug the chuggable and chew on the chewy. And most importantly, work out what's going on with yourself emotionally as you engage with God. Argue, get frustrated, submit. Don't have a Stepford God in your life. Get real with the living God by praying covenantally through Scripture. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we, your word is alive. Your word is spirit. Help us not to just see it as dead text, frustrating text. Help us bring our emotion, listening, is to your spirit help us as often happens to be so confronted even as i sing these songs shout to the lord i don't shout i feel convicted as i sing and i know i'm being called to do it father you talk to us corporately in worship and you talk to us personally through the word help us to find you through that not some creation in our own heads but the real you the true you the parent who is infinitely patient and infinitely loving with the slug. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.